0: Hello, and welcome to episode 14 of the Missing Stone Podcast, where I interview conservationists about their path through their chosen field and the work they are doing today. I want to make a quick announcement that after this episode, I will be stepping away from this podcast for the foreseeable future, though I do hope to restart the podcast soon. Getting back to this week's episode, I was excited to speak with Chris Smith, the Southwest Wildlife Advocate for Wild Earth Guardians. Chris shared several stories from his experience discovering and developing his career as a wildlife advocate, including an exciting story featuring the final votes for a bill to pass the New Mexico State Senate. We discussed several of the projects Chris is working on, including developing a beaver restoration plan for the state of New Mexico. Chris also had great advice for those looking to take their first steps into wildlife advocacy. If you would like to learn more about Wild Earth Guardians and the work Chris is doing, please follow the links in the description below. I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome back everybody to the Missing Stone Podcast. I am so excited to introduce our guest today, Southwest Wildlife Advocate for Wild Earth
1: Guardians, Chris Smith. How are you doing today, Chris? I'm doing well. I'm excited to be here. It's better than roaming the halls of the New Mexico State Capitol where our legislature is in session. So, this is a nice change of pace.
0: So, when you got into environmental advocacy, did you think you were going to be in the
1: field more often or did you expect to be in an office? (laughs) Oh, that's a good question. I didn't get into environmental advocacy with a lot of expectations. I have stumbled and fallen and lost my grip and just continue to go down the the whole, so it's more, more gravity working against me than me striving for anything specific. I think when I tell people what my job is, they imagine that I'm out in the field doing amazing things. And I do get to do that, but not much as part of my job. So that's, that's a, a non-answer to your question. I, I think the first time I had a real office and was going into this building on a regular schedule, I thought, oh, this is what real people do for work. And that was a fun moment. But I didn't imagine what I was going to be doing. The other question would be how many people
0: imagine you up in a tree trying to prevent it from being chopped down?
1: Yeah, I think that's more what people think about when they hear what I do. My nieces used to call me the Lorax when I worked in (laughs) forest conservation and It's always disappointing to tell people that mostly what you do is write and respond to emails all day or read scientific papers. You're not up in trees uh, defending the forests. But I will say, having done this for about 10 or 12 years in different contexts, I have been able to do some pretty fun things, including spending some time in some beautiful forests, staring up at the canopy looking for endangered birds and stuff like that. So, it's not without its wildness in practice, but for the most part, it's an office job. Let's not kid ourselves. So, I'd
0: love to ask you more about some of those stories, but first, I want to jump all the way back to be, back to the beginning and really ask, what was that first moment that got you into
1: conservation? A moment of recognition or a conversion moment. I grew up in rural Santa Fe County in New Mexico and every day when I got home from school I would jump off the school bus we lived on a dirt road and there was not a lot of people out there I would jump off the school bus throw my backpack into the house and just run outside and spend the next depending on how much daylight there was 5 to or 2 to 5 hours just running around in nature but at the time i didn't really think of like nature or wildness as something separate or something that needed to be protected or something that we need to focus on it was just an everyday part of my life was running around in chamisa bushes and climbing trees and you know chasing rabbits around and all kinds of weird things so in some ways i was always very much embedded in the world of wildness and nature but I never knew it And then by the time I figured out that this is what I was doing for a quote-unquote career I was all I had already been doing it for a while. I started doing this by by way of community organizing not specifically for environmental protection or conservation but to empower youth voters and so I didn't say oh I want to protect the environment let me go do that. I said, I want to empower people. And through doing that work, I was sucked into the conservation movement. But again, I always had those that inherent kind of integration with the landscape and with wild animals and stuff like that, just because Mm -hmm. of my upbringing. So I always get excited
0: talking to people who I know you probably don't consider yourself necessarily a career switcher, but who entered college with a different track in mind than conservation or wildlife advocacy. So I'd love to dive into what that path is, because you said you went into college for religious studies. And then from there, you found your way to community organizing and then conservation. So what is that path like to go in expecting to do one thing
1: and come out in conservation? That's a good question. So I went into college with curiosity more than wanting to study anything in particular. And I had an aptitude and and real genuine interest in studying religion because it was something that I hadn't been exposed to very much as a young person. And I thought, this is really important to a lot of people in the world, and I don't know anything about it. So I might as well learn about this. I found it fascinating. And you can study art, history, literature, conservation, astrology. You can study almost anything you want through the lens of religion. So it was this fun way to just look at whatever aspect of the world I wanted. But as that matured, it it became more of an inquest into what drives people and how they are orienting themselves to either God or goodness or something beyond themselves and how they live their lives in accordance with what they think should be and how they should be good or just or right. And so that's how I got into studying ethics and and how people interact with with the broader world and with other people. And that took me to how people perceive nature and how people perceive wild animals or wildlife and wild places and how we as the most powerful species on this planet what we do with that power in the framework of ethics and morality so that that's how i got to that question and i actually i finished my degree but i essentially dropped out of graduate school because i wanted to implement my own answer to that question rather than just Sit in a library and read what old dead white men had said about that question. Um, so the path was really—it's been really circuitous, but also really interesting. I think the two really impactful things that that come out of that pathway in my day-to-day job is that first and foremost, like I'm not formally trained in anything I do. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not any of these things that I think would be really helpful to be. So I have a learning curve on every issue that I get into, and I learn how to read science or I learn how to find pivot points in government processes, things like that. But I'm often flying by the seat of my pants. So that's a deficit, I think. But at the same time, a lot of people in this movement only see the work through a lens of science or the law or things like that. And so I get to see it from different perspectives. And I think that enables me to both think strategically and creatively about how to get things done but also meet most normal people on on a level where they're at if that makes sense because we're all asking the question of what am I doing and why constantly whether or not we think about it and again that's the question that I ask as I do this work so what do you see as that shortcoming then when somebody comes
0: in with that science first or as a conservationist first into this field and is trying to communicate, where do you see that kind of struggling and what methods do you try to help people with then to get into the mindset that you're in?
1: Yeah, to be clear, it is a shortcoming, but it's also a strength. So I want to be I want to be cautious. I've got a lot of friends who are scientists. I'm not trying to throw them under the bus. I think a lot of people, especially in the world of wildlife, which is what I work in, they come in and they say oh the science shows this and clearly decision makers and the public they should just understand that's what things should be like if if the best scientists in the world are saying killing beavers is detrimental to ecosystem health certainly the policy to protect beavers will naturally follow from that and that's just not true at all people make decisions based on all kinds of Other things that have nothing to do with science. People make decisions to do with their faith or their personal values or what side of the bed they woke up on that morning or what they need to do to put food on the table that night. And so I think if anything is a shortcoming, it's that over reliance on fact and kind of empirical evidence and an under reliance on personal truths and stories and values. When I was completing my master's,
0: I felt like the discussions that we were having, people really just wanted, like you said, to go with the science and didn't want to embrace how to bring a community on board and look at things from the community's perspective. And so what strategies have you developed to help you look at the community's perspective? and include that in the policy or advocacy work that you're doing. So how do you help envelop or include that community perspective?
1: Okay. Yeah. I think you, you touched on this a little bit with your discussion with my friend, Dr. Lute, and I don't remember exactly what she said, but she said something about science. Good science lays out the array of possibilities that may or may not happen given certain actions, right? So you could assemble the best team of ecologists and biologists in the world, and you could put together a super comprehensive and methodologically strong study on what happens when we drop napalm on all of our forests in the American West. Now, you could do that with really strong science, right? And. The question of whether or not we should drop napalm all over the West isn't answered by That science will tell us exactly what might happen, but we need to get back to our values to answer those questions. And I'm sorry, that's a crass example. Uh, I don't mean to make light of that kind of thing. But if you present that set of outcomes to a community, and then you ask them, are the outcomes of dropping napalm all over the American West aligned with your values? Is what you value a scorched earth or an entire destroyed ecosystem? The answer is going to be no. And that's an extreme example for a reason, because I think too often we ask people, oh, what? how do you feel if we kill this many bears or this many wolves? Does that align with your values? Because the science supports killing this many wolves or killing this many bears. And that takes the values discussion away from people and it disempowers people who don't necessarily understand science or don't have the privilege and time to understand science. And really what they want to know is how do these policy decisions align with or fail to align with my values? So I think The short answer of what I'm rambling on about is like, centering values in those conversations and ensuring that what I'm trying to do is conveyed in a way that makes people understand that what I'm trying to do aligns with most people's values. Not everyone's, let's be clear, but most people's. And so I try to distill complicated things, and I'm not good at this, but what I try to do is distill complicated things um in a way where people can examine themselves and say oh this is where i fall on this decision so that was that, a very <laughs> long-winded and rambling way of again getting back to people's values and what they value both kind of in a philosophical sense but also in a day-to-day sense which a lot of people that is the focus and it has to be the focus and it's a privilege for that not to be the focus
0: and we started this tangent, if you will, talking about your ability to look at different people's values and having slightly different values yourself from people who come into this from a purely scientific background. So I'd love to jump into some of your early experience out of your master's where you were first starting to campaign that really got you interested and into both campaigning and then eventually conservation.
1: Yeah. I, like I say, I did finish my degree, but I basically dropped out of graduate school and I started organizing communities in northern coastal Oregon to protect what's left of native and older forests in that region, which are, they've been clear cut to smithereens over the years, but there's still some really important ecological values to be found in that region. And they're not just ecological in the sense that wildlife and other species rely on them. Human communities rely on these ecosystems as well for healthy salmon runs or clean air, clean water, especially recreation, et cetera. And so I started doing this work and I thought, this is great. What I'm doing is Protecting trees and protecting rivers and protecting fish and maybe protecting humans in the long term, too. And I had this people who grew up where there are salmon would and did laugh at me, but I had this kind of epiphany moment when I saw some spawning coho salmon about 80 miles from the coast in this state forest in Oregon. And I thought, oh, that's like I knew what a salmon was, of course, but I thought the only time I've ever seen this fish before was when it was dyed bright orange and it was expensive in the grocery store where I grew up in the desert. And I had this moment where that's how most people interact with abstract nature. There's very few of us, I am one of the lucky few, but who spend a lot of time in the wild. And most people, their relationship to wildness or or nature is reading about it, seeing pictures of it, maybe occasionally like a walk in a City park or a state park near their home. And I had this realization that we need to bridge that gap in understanding and relating to nature because the 1% of us who do 100 mile backpacking trips are not going to save what's left of the wild in this country or the world. It has to matter to other people. And having that kind of minor epiphany that this has to matter to everyone, not just a few privileged people really started making me think more deeply about like why we value wildness aside from whatever inherent values we ascribe to it and that and you, kind of that that changed the way i talked to people about the work when i was trying to again empower these communities to speak up for their forests
0: and you talk about how a lot of people don't really spend nearly that much time out in nature that the handful do Yet one thing that I both noticed and from talking to other people seems to be backed up by data as well is we actually have had this kind of outdoor revolution, if you will, coming through COVID with COVID inspiring people to really start getting out of the house and since keep getting out of the house and try backpacking or hiking or skiing. How has that impacted your work as an advocate? having people, having an increased
1: number of people who are going out and actually experiencing this? That's a good question. And I think my answer might be disappointing. There was, there was an article that ran in High Country News a few years back by by someone I came to know after the fact. The title of the article was, I think it was, Your Stoke Won't Save Us. And the premise was basically like, yeah, more and more people are going to these wild places and they're spending more time outside. and." That's good, but that is not going to spur and drive conservation victories necessarily. And I think, unfortunately, that's true. And in fact, I would even go a little further in that a lot of what we used to talk about in the conservation movement eight or 10 years ago was about how we need to prioritize like this low impact recreation economy instead of these extractive economies like logging or mining so if you can protect a mountain from a mine then one of the ways you do it is by talking about how great it will be for everyone to mountain bike up that mountain for years to come and i think what has come to pass unfortunately is and i'm just picking on mountain bikers here but it could be anyone and and to be very clear i do a lot of these things so i'm not trying to throw stones in a glass house necessarily. But the number of people who are outside now is impacting the landscape. It's impacting the wildlife. And it's great when those people speak up to protect places or protect endangered species and stuff. But we're also doing a significant amount of damage when we're all outside recreating en masse. So it's a double-edged sword. It's great for people to have that connection. It's great for mental health. It's great for people to see what's happening both good and bad on the landscape. And I don't want to devalue any of that. But I think this notion that like outdoor recreation and people getting outside is going to drive conservation is wide of the mark, unfortunately. And I subscribed to that for a long time, and I think I've only recently hopped off that train. But instead, I think what needs to supplant that is an understanding that in tech, Ecosystems provide services regardless of whether we're out fishing in them or mountain biking in them or hiking in them. Like those are important because we need clean air. We need clean water. We need the lungs of the earth to remain intact. We need the full suite of biodiversity because complicated, diverse systems are resilient and healthy, not because I can go have fun on those places. And that's a really difficult thing to admit because we have to totally rethink like how we engage people in places where they may never be, or maybe it's not even good for them to be there for, from an ecological standpoint. And that's a, a real challenge for the movement right now. I definitely can see that being
0: a challenge. And a lot of what I want to talk to you about with your work with Wild Earth Guardians has to do with those in keeping those ecosystems intact and trying to Bring them back to becoming an intact ecosystem. So, before we jump fully into that, I'd love to just ask. So, you got your start really in conservation in the Pacific Northwest, but ended up back in New Mexico, where you grew up, or in the Southeast to do or to work with wild earth guardians. So, what was that path? Were you always trying to get back to New Mexico, Arizona area, or? was it just a lucky break that you were really excited
1: to take it was more the former i think i never consciously knew this but i in, on some level i always knew i would return to northern new mexico every place is special to people who are from there i think but this these landscapes the mountains the rivers the deserts here are like they're a very deep part of my being and so i think on some kind of deeper level i think i knew i would always return to the desert but the reason i came back wasn't necessarily for work it was also to be closer to family and to just get a change of scenery i was really enjoying the work i was doing in the pacific northwest i feel like i was making a difference it's a beautiful and great place to live but i think on some level again that i didn't know until after i had made the move like these are the landscapes that i want to be advocating for because and I know this is really fraught, but these are my landscapes. I don't mean that in any kind of like owning colonial way, but these are the landscapes that that I grew up in and that I feel most connected to and most comfortable in and that I understand the best. So half accident, half unknown drive, I think. But yeah, this is where it's at. I'm a desert person. I think even though I got rained on for a long time in the Pacific Northwest, it never totally sat with me.
0: And I wanted to ask going into this, the Pacific Northwest does have a lot of open lands. The West in general does, but the Southwest, more than pretty much anywhere else in the U.S., just has sprawling open spaces. You mentioned that New Mexico's 40% public land, which is pretty astronomical if you think about it. So how does that sprawling and wide open, because it's a desert landscape, impact being a wildlife advocate compared to whether it's compared to being on the East Coast where you have much smaller areas you're trying to conserve or being in areas like the Pacific Northwest as well? What are some unique factors to advocating for the Southwest?
1: Oh, that's a really good question. And it's got my brain working a little bit. I think first and foremost, I grew up with this irresponsible notion, but it was there nonetheless that I could go anywhere I wanted. And part of that is because so much of this region is public lands where you can go anywhere you want, but part of it was just where I grew up. Like there weren't fences, there were arroyos where like how people walked around more than roads. In my neighborhood, like the dogs just ran wild. We saw coyotes roaming around and foxes. And so I think I always had this sense of, again, like integration with the broader landscape, which I I suspect is absent in places like in the East where you can't really do that. And there aren't these sweeping landscapes that you can, you could just stand up on a hill and like point to a place 10 miles in the distance and be like, oh, I'm going to walk over there. I don't think that exists in the East in my experience, but it does here. And it was part of my upbringing. And I think what that does in terms of landscapes and and wildlife and advocating for protection is it, there's just a a connection to them which can be really intimate uh because you can be in all these places and you can spend significant time in all these places i like slept in Chamisa tunnels as a kid and we would go backpacking every summer and we would drive around utah and arizona and camp in these incredible places so you get to feel the dirt on your feet and you feel like you're a part of those landscapes but the other thing it does to me at least is it the expansiveness and being able to see really far and seeing mountain ranges that are hundreds of miles away is it instills you with a sense of awe and I think that for me that awe is it has the effect of making me feel small and humble in a really important way I think a lot of people, and maybe this is more of an American symptom than a human symptom, but I think a lot of people think of themselves and their communities and their family and their species as the most important thing that matters. And maybe that's okay, but it's leading us down a pretty destructive road. And so when you feel small in a landscape and you know that there are things out there that Either individually or collectively are like more substantial and maybe more important than you. I think it gives you both like a healthy respect and maybe even fear of that landscape, but it also makes you think about your role. Why should I be, why should something be destroyed for my sake or why should something be compromised for my sake? I'm just a little speck of dust on these 500,000 acres, just like other beings. So I think that's part of it. And I think also the desert is, I live in the high desert, so it's not like it's just sand dunes around me or anything. But the desert is a fragile place, and the things that eke out a living here are incredibly resilient. And that that resilience, I think, inspires hope in me when there would otherwise be a lot of despair. So speaking of that
0: resilience to live in the desert, outside of possibly Areas like Wyoming and Idaho that also have grizzly bear coming in, as well as wolf reintroduction, as well as coyote and mountain lion. Outside of that area, really in the U.S., the Southwest has the potential for the most carnivores or predators to live in that area. Not just one, but two species of wolves are native to that area. You've got mountain lions, black bear, I believe, coyote. So, how does that also play a role in advocating for these open spaces? Do you find that with so much land, people are a little more comfortable with the presence of predators, or do you feel the opposite of that?
1: We also had grizzly bears historically. So, add that to the list. So, wolves, bears, lions, the whole suite, which is pretty amazing. And yeah, you're absolutely right. Like the Southwest has incredible biodiversity that people don't think about. The Gila bioregion in southwestern New Mexico and southeastern Arizona is more biodiverse than Yellowstone. So I think people write the desert off as a dead place when it's anything but. But to get back to your question, I think there's still, even when we are so far removed from it in our day-to-day lives, I think there's still a little bit of wild West ethos and, and mythos here. And I think that cuts both ways. I think the domineering nature of westward expansion by colonialists was incredibly damaging to people and wildlife and this notion that the land is ours for whatever we want to do with it, which is basically grow cattle. That's a ginormous problem that we're still trying to correct. But that that kind of western... Ethos And and to be clear, I identify as a Western American more than I identify as a citizen of the United States or a number of other identifiers. I consider myself a person of the West. Uh, But the other side of that, I think ethos is the notion that these lands are wild and they can be a little dangerous and they have mysteries in them still, even after so much development and migration. Like you can get out there still. And there are those carnivores out there too. And you're unlikely to encounter them, but they're out there with you. And that that sits with you when you're in the in the backcountry a little bit. And I think that to people who think critically about what that means, that's probably a good thing. For a lot of people, it's a fearful thing and one that creates reactions that are driven by fear. But for other people, I think it's like again, it's an awe-inspiring thing. And I can't speak to whether that's true in other landscapes. I suspect it is in the Northern Rockies too. But again, I think the desert adds a little bit of... The desert's trying to kill you really slowly. And I really like that. The other landscapes, other places are... If they're going to kill you, they're going to kill you really quick. The ocean is like this... I love the ocean, but that thing is scary as hell because if it wants to do away with you, it'll do it like that. But the desert is like slowly taking you. And that allows for a lot of contemplation, I think.
0: So I feel like that's a great place to transition to more of your work at Wild Earth Guardians. And before we dive into your current projects, you did send to me some legislation that you passed. I believe it was 2019. I could be wrong on that year. But where it was a really monumental legislative piece to stop trapping throughout New Mexico on public lands and just the process. And you came in late to that process, but what that showed you for working with legislators and working in advocacy. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about that campaign and bringing it across the finish line.
1: Yeah. So we passed that legislation in 2021. And depending who you ask, what kind of old codger you ask who worked on it It started as long as 17 or 18 years prior. so It was almost a 20-year effort by a lot of people. And I think it's one of the most significant wildlife policy changes I've seen in the American West, at, at least at the state level. We've reintroduced and protected a lot of large carnivores that we wiped off. The landscape, and that's great, but that was mostly federal action, and I think state level action is harder in some ways. Suffice it to say, it was like a massive win, and Colorado and Arizona had both banned public lands trapping to to some extent, but they had done it with a ballot initiative, and we don't have that here in New Mexico. So we have this really arcane, very slow moving legislature that meets infrequently. Is unpaid, is chaotic, is inefficient. So, getting anything done in New Mexico takes a lot of work. But getting this really controversial win took just an incredible amount of work by a lot of people. And I think the lessons learned from my role in it, I was involved in the last five years of the effort and did, I think, a significant part in pushing it over the line. But again, it comes back to the need to talk to people about their values. And talk to people about how their values are represented in policy. And when I say values, I don't wanna open up a giant can of worms, but I think we as a society are pretty divorced from our values. And instead of thinking about what really matters to us, it's way easier to think in terms of politics or issues rather than like really grounded and universal things. But I think we did that. And by that, talking to people's real values for a while. And we talked about how trapping is cruel. Like there is no way around it. Trapped animals suffer greatly for hours and hours and sometimes gnaw off their own legs to get away. And there's, I think most people don't want to be cruel. And we talked about public safety and how If you're out on a trail, you or your dog or your friend's dog can step in a trap. And this happened with alarming frequency in New Mexico on public lands. And I think, again, that's a a human value is wanting to feel safe and wanting your loved ones to feel safe. And we talked about trapping compared to hunting and how trapping is indiscriminate and it's a commercial activity rather than putting food on the table. And again, I think people's values vis-a-vis wildlife, a lot of people are okay with hunting because it's been done for legitimate purposes for millennia, Um, not all hunting, to be clear, but a lot of it, versus trapping, which is a relatively recent thing, at least at scale, and which is done to make money, not provide food for your family. So again, I think we really rooted this conversation in people's values, and made clear that public lands trapping was out of step with public values. And the polling showed that for several years before we actually got the policy in line with it. But after enough conversations with people, and especially lawmakers, I think you're able to drive home those points. But you have to cut through the politics and the noise and the hyperbole and the The kind of yelling culture that we are also tied to in this society, unfortunately. And you have to have grounded, meaningful conversations, not yelling matches. And I think ultimately that's what allowed us to succeed in passing that law.
0: And even with all that work, you said that it was a pretty close call. So I really enjoyed reading that. So I'd love for you to share and add a little bit of your perspective of kind of how much you're sweating when you're seeing this vote go down.
1: Yeah, it's hard to really convey how that felt because it's not an, I don't think it's a compelling story to listen to, but to feel it was really powerful. So this was 2021 pre-COVID vaccine. We're all largely working from our homes in the virtual world but there's still a legislative session. Some of the legislators are in the actual building. Others are in their homes or in their offices zooming in. And same for the activists like me. There were four or five of us who were on a text thread trying to ensure that we were doing everything we can to get this bill over the line. A friend of mine who's an advocate who lives in very rural New Mexico doesn't have any internet. So she was listening to the hearing on my computer via my phone. So I I just had my phone on the table and speaker phone, and that's how she was hearing it. So it was, I think the COVID moment really added to it because there's even more drama when you're alone and you're just getting text messages once in a while or an email once in a while. Anyway, so we were watching this Bill's final step or final meaningful step to becoming law um. There was a three-hour, very contentious debate with all kinds of colorful characters in the New Mexico legislature. There's a woman who wears cowboy skin boots and puts them up on the table to make a point that she loves killing coyotes. Sorry, did I say cowboy skin?
0: <laughs> yeah, I was gonna. I was gonna ask in a bit.
1: There's, <laughs> there's a legislator who wears coyote skin boots and puts them up on the table to make the point that she kills coyotes. And there are legislators who. We're talking about how wildlife is going to run rampant and destroy ranching and drag little kids away. And it's just such a circus. And it became this real flashpoint for the culture wars. And to watch all this play out on Zoom over the course of three hours was totally exhausting because... This was the last best chance for this bill to to get through. But if a bill loses a vote like this, it's really hard to bring it back in subsequent years. And we didn't know if we had the votes to pass it. We knew we were close, but we could not get confirmation from five or six legislators. So we're this was do or die for this really important piece of legislation that people had been working on for 15 plus years. And at the end of this three hour debate, which again was like a microcosm of so many culture wars. The vote opened. It lasts 90 seconds. And for the last 20 seconds, the the vote was tied 34-34. And a tie is a loss. You're done if if your bill ties. So we needed that one more vote. There were two legislators absent. One of them we thought was a yes vote. And we were frantically texting her, where are you? Where are you? We need you to vote right now. Never heard back from her, and the other was a maybe vote. We didn't know which way she was going, so we just had to sit back and wait and finally, she woke up at her desk where she had fallen asleep. These legislators are working twenty hours a day for thirty days, so they're exhausted, running on fast food and candy. Anyway, she woke up from her desk <clears throat> and voted yes, and that was the the vote that got the bill across and the other vote was it, she happened to be in the bathroom at the time, so she never voted. But this final yes vote, about two months earlier, before before the bill passed, her daughter-in-law's dog had been trapped in a snare and nearly strangled to death. I don't wish that on anyone or any dog, of course, but in some ways, a lot of good came out of that incident. Whether she would have voted yes, or, regardless, I don't know. Maybe she would have, but It's hard to imagine that uh, incident of a dog that she knew and loved nearly dying on public lands because of a trapper. It's hard to believe that wouldn't have impacted her. Yeah, for for so much work, volunteers collecting signatures and people tabling at farmers markets and years of lobbying and media and communications work, for it all to come down to one, one person who happened to wake up in time and vote yes because maybe her dog or her daughter-in-law's dog had been trapped it's just hard to believe and if we had lost it would have been crushing but we didn't so i can recount it with some joy
0: that sounds like a really stressful moment too so what are some of the key takeaways that you get from coming out of a moment like that working on a campaign like that and specifically takeaways that you then apply to the work that you're
1: doing today I think the takeaway from me was like, yeah, we, we had a little bit of luck or serendipity or chance go our way, but the only way that we set ourselves up for that was a lot of hard work. And everyone likes to say they work hard. It's like this curse of capitalism that we value something that's fairly unpleasant. So I don't want to use it as a cliche, but there were three or four of us. Who really led that campaign at the end, who worked our asses off teen hour days, doing every possible thing we could to ensure that we had a chance of winning. And I think that was a lesson to take away. I've always, you know, worked hard for whatever that's worth. But to see it manifest in a victory, I think was eye-opening. It was like, okay, these things that seem immovable can be moved. It may take 17 years, but we can make change, which again, in a world without a lot of hope, did bring about some hope in my mind. And it definitely galvanized me to think, okay, where can we take the lessons we learned, the strategies we implemented, the tactics we implemented? Like, Where else can we apply these both geographically, but also to other issues? And since then, we've done that to some extent. I was involved in not the vote to to restore wolves to Colorado, but the process by which they were restored after that vote. And I think we we drove that in the right direction. We've helped to ban wildlife killing contests in other states. We've we're working to recover endangered species. And a lot of the lessons that I learned on that trapping campaign are they come into play every day. And I think the one, the primary one is people's voices still matter. And in the majority of people want what we want. They want protected places. They want respected wildlife. They want intact ecosystems. They want clean water. They want clean air. They don't want our planet to be cooked to a crisp. And we just have to bring that public sentiment and those public values to the fore and ensure that they're manifested in policy. And
0: speaking of trying to build up new policy, your current project you mentioned is you're developing a project for restoration of beavers and beaver habitats. So I'd love to dive into this new project you're working on and actually look at it in a couple different ways. But first, I'd love for you to just give a little bit of background on why that's the project you're choosing to pursue.
1: Yeah. Beavers are the second most impactful ecosystem engineers on the planet after humans. Humans have very clearly left our mark. There's some pretty cool human architecture out there and infrastructure, but there's a lot of bad stuff that we've done too, if we're being honest. Beavers mostly do good stuff. They store water, they clean water, they keep water cool, they recharge aquifers, they provide wildfire breaks, they provide wildfire refugia for other species, they promote you know trout and salmon habitat, they elongate the season of surface water in some of these dry places like New Mexico. They create wetlands habitats. They are truly the most impactful wildlife species, I think, on the landscape. And that includes apex predators who who also have a big impact. And they were mostly wiped out of North America. By some accounts, there were as many as 400 million beavers here before. Um, the trapping trade really revved up. And I think most people estimate that at the nadir of the beaver population, after trappers had their way, there were about 100,000. So, annihilated from the landscape. And with them went their infrastructure, their dams that they build. And beavers are coming back slowly. Most people think there's about 10 or 15 million beavers in North America now. So, it's not as though they're endangered species or they're at risk of Of going anywhere, but they're not here in the numbers that they were, not even a fraction of the numbers they were. And because of that, the landscapes have drastically changed. And if you look at historical accounts of the American West, it was a much more green and wet and lush and hospitable place than it is now. And part of there's a number of reasons why that's the case, but the absence of beavers is a really big reason. Water, Falls as rain or snow, and it goes to the ocean pretty darn quick. And beavers are good at storing it and slowing it down and allowing access to it in the interim. And without beavers, we just don't have that. We have drier, more dead landscapes as a result. So there's a number of states and organizations that have been working to bring back beavers for a long time. This isn't like the cutting edge or anything like that. But New Mexico could really use beavers. We are a Dry place for the most part. And 10 years ago, the New Mexico Senate kind of asked politely for a beaver restoration plan from the state agencies, and they never got it. New Mexico has a lot of money right now because we're a big oil and gas producing state. I figure with some of that money that's basically coming from poisoning the environment and creating or rapidly accelerating climate change, we might as well use some of it to bring beavers back to mitigate some of those problems that we're facing. And also, we've had historically bad wildfire years in recent history, including a couple years ago where just one fire alone, over 300,000 acres burned. So we are among the states and the regions that are really facing the impacts of the climate crisis, and beavers are a way to mitigate them. They also store carbon. So along with dealing with the symptoms of climate change, they can actually help deal with the root cause a little bit too. So I think that New Mexico needs and deserves and should have more beavers. And the state agencies have dragged their feet in this effort. They sometimes relocate beavers once in a while, but it's opportunistic and minimal. But I think we need to be doing it in a really robust way at scale to heal and restore these landscapes that have decayed a lot. So that's why I'm trying to launch an effort to get a statewide Bieber restoration plan here in New Mexico.
0: So when you sit down to try to launch an effort as large as this, what are the goals, the end goals that you write down for yourself? I don't know if you actually write them down or just the ones that you and your team decide, hey, this is our end goal. This is what we want to see ultimately happen for this to be a success.
1: Yeah. I think about the goal as the goal is something I don't have control over. The goal is beavers and their infrastructure in as many watersheds across New Mexico as can be allowed without really interfering with people. But the objective is a statewide beaver plan and the ways to get there are asking the agency really nicely for it on one end of the spectrum and on the other end of the spectrum, it's getting the state legislature to tell the agency that they need to do this and giving them the money to do that. And wherever we end up on that spectrum, which I'm not sure about yet, it's easier to ask the agency nicely, but it doesn't always work. Wherever we end on that spectrum, it, it's going to require a lot of public pressure from normal New Mexicans, but also significantly New Mexicans who are impacted by our water shortages and by drought. So that includes farmers, even ranchers who historically have seen beavers as a nuisance species are beginning to understand that beavers are actually really worthwhile to have. But bringing those communities, including tribes and pueblos who are facing the climate crisis and historically had beavers in their watersheds, restoration groups whose projects are like really leveled up by the presence of beavers. So bringing all these impacted and impactful stakeholders to the fore and telling the powers that be our decision makers, whether that's our state game commission, Or the governor or the state legislature, like, we can't wait any longer for this. You need to act. So that's how I do my work, which sounds pretty vague. And sometimes I don't know what it looks like. And I fumble around a lot. And I don't, yeah, we're Wild Earth Guardians is good at building the airplane while we're flying it. And sometimes it doesn't work, but sometimes it does.
0: So that's actually a great point because my next questions, we're going to try to be to get a little more specific with some of this. And I definitely understand that, like you said, you're building the airplane while you're flying it. But just breaking down some of those components, what are some strategies you've developed when you're trying to reach out to these different stakeholder groups to get them on board? What are the strategies you've developed to start the conversation and to make sure that you're both going to end up with a goal that's a mutual goal, that's
1: something that both of you want? I'll start with a caveat first. W- Wild Earth Guardians is not a group that is known for compromise and meeting people halfway and collaborating with interests that we see as antithetical to our vision. There's a lot of conservation groups that work that way. God bless them. Wild Earth Guardians isn't that. We have a pretty clear vision of the world, and we are going to push for that vision to become a reality, which is Part of why I love working here. And I've worked with other groups who are more about compromise and collaboration and stuff. And that's fun too, but this is more fun, frankly. So I'll put that caveat out there. But that doesn't prohibit me from speaking really honestly about what I value and what I want and why I want it. And in my experience, if you start discussions from that place uh, of being really honest, um you're not going to bring everyone with you but you're at least going to know who is with you and who's not for example i've been on the phone with some trout groups basically like these are groups that are their rank and file members are trout fishermen which in and of itself is not like something that wild earth guardians works on we don't we're not trying to open up public access for trout fishing or ensure that there's Rainbow trout for people to catch. That's not a wild earth guardian's priority. But if I go to a trout angler who may not have a whole lot in common with me, and I tell them that beavers are going to benefit trout populations and water quality and habitat, they can either believe me or not. But I have a reputation of being honest in presenting what I know to be true at face value. And for the most part, that those Kinds of relationships work for me. I don't think this is really what you're trying to get at. (laughs) No, this is definitely
0: that direction of how you create that first step. So identifying groups that you might not agree with 100% or have most of the same goals, such as trout fishermen, but you reach out to them in order to create these partnerships because ultimately both of you will benefit from beavers. So it's interesting then you're developing, like you said, you're working with native groups, you're working with, or indigenous groups, I should say you're working with uh, trout fishermen, you're working with all these different groups. So once you get their cooperation, what's that next step? Are you trying to push out educational materials for a larger group of the public or are you trying to create a more targeted campaign that's going to be specific towards people in the state legislation that would actually be able to make an impact on this?
1: Yeah. Let me back up real quick and then I'll answer that question. So I think the way, a better way to, to describe this relational um, way of working is that I have a story to tell and everyone else has a story to tell. And we all have, we're all living in the moment of now. And if I can tell you my story and why I want beavers, and you can tell me what you want, and there's overlap there, then I'm very good at finding that overlap and being like, okay, so this is what we both want. This is the shared common ground. This is our shared story. We need to tell that story together. And that's from a background in community organizing. It's like speaking your truth and being open to other people's truths and finding where those truths overlap and being open to being surprised where they do. Maybe that's a little bit more cogent way of saying the relational part. But to your question about more tactics and strategy, it's both a public education campaign because ultimately, at least for the time being, we still live in a democracy where every person's viewpoint matters. And I want people to know why beavers matter both in the greater scheme of things, but also to their lives. And so to the extent that I can bring the New Mexico public to a point of not only understanding beavers, but advocating for their restoration, that's going to make everything else I do easier. And I don't have to lie to tell that story or convince people. like It is just true for the most part. And that's where I was half-heartedly bad-mouthing scientists, but it's scientists who make me able to say that's true, right? So you all are actually important, it turns out. And then the second part is, yes, it's targeted and it's strategic because I don't need the percent plus one New Mexicans to like beavers in order to win this campaign, right? That's not how things work. And in fact, the trapping bill was a great example where 65% of New Mexicans didn't want any trapping at all, but it It's not as though that just automatically becomes policy, right? We still had to fight an uphill political battle. So I'm strategic in terms of um, who is telling what story to whom. A cattle rancher in rural New Mexico is not going to take a phone call from me because Wild Earth Guardians has a history and an, an earned reputation that we're proud of advocating for wolves and lions and bears and advocating for healthier landscapes that often conflicts with what cattle ranchers want, right? But I know other people who um, will take a call from me who can also call a rural cattle rancher. So sometimes it's just finding someone who trusts me. Who also has the trust of someone else who might not trust me? And maybe we bridge that gap and I am talking to that rural cattle rancher eventually, or maybe not. Maybe I just stay out of the way, but I build that relationship through someone else. And again, as long as it's all honest and true, we're all getting something beneficial. Beavers are going to benefit cattle ranchers. They just don't want me to tell them that. They want someone else to tell them that. And likewise, with political figures like I don't have an open line to a lot of legislators because they don't necessarily align with wild Earth Guardians, but I have a, a line to some and I have a line to a lot of other people who have lines to those other legislators. So it's about building a network that's really strategic and not changing the message because I don't want someone to come to the table for reasons that are fake or are, Ulterior to mine, like I want beavers on the landscape. I don't want people to think I'm tricking them into getting beavers on the landscape, but they might want beavers on the landscape for another reason. And that's totally fine. To get a little more into the details, like I have a map of the decision makers I need to make this happen. And I have a path to get to all of those decision makers. And I'm not going to get to all of them, but I'm going to get to enough of them eventually to make it happen.
0: So if somebody listening to this wants to get involved, whether in a year or two, they want to be involved in helping beavers come to New Mexico, or they're in Utah and they're wanting to get involved with trying to limit or prevent hunting of mountain lions through legislation, what's a good way for somebody listening who wants to become more involved in wildlife advocacy on the side, not necessarily as a job, but just as something they do in their day to day, how can they, what's the first steps for them to get involved?
1: Man, this is going to sound pretty boring and I wish I had a sexier message, but I think the two most important things that people may not realize is it doesn't take a lot of effort to be grounded in a foundation of truth. I see a lot of advocates on both sides of a number of issues who are either uneducated or they're not being honest. And they're saying, Things that just are not factual. And I think if you ground yourself in facts, that's really important because you can be successful for a short while on flimsy data, but it comes back around. So you need to do the homework and you need to know what you're talking about. And often just doing a little bit of work to find out why you believe in something and back that up with data, it actually reinforces your beliefs. Or it challenges them and that's fine too, right? So that's one thing is do a little bit of homework. And it doesn't have to be a lot, but just a little bit. And the other thing is also not sexy, but people are people feel disempowered in this country for really good reasons. And I think that can be changed. And the way to do it is to think smaller, to think locally. I think every American over the age of 15 knows who the president is. Right now, and maybe 40% of Americans who are over 15 know who one of their senators is, and maybe 20% of Americans over 15 know who their House representative is in Congress, and 10% know who their state senator is, and 5% know who their state rep is, and 1% know who their county commission is, et cetera, et cetera. And you'd be shocked. By how much access we actually have to decision-making processes and politics, if we stopped focusing on Joe Biden and Donald Trump, you can call your state house representative and they'd probably have a cup of coffee with you and tell you what they're working on and ask you what they want them to work on. They may disagree with you, but we are so focused on immovable, horrible national politics and we don't operate at the local level anymore and we need to. And it's really like folksy to say, oh, just talk to your neighbor about what matters to you. And But there's a lot of truth to that. And we don't do that because we sling crap on social media and complain about federal politics instead, which doesn't work. And you say that really... Those are really unsexy ways to be an effective advocate, I think.
0: You say that, but I actually think... For most people listening to this, I'm sure there's quite a few that have either taken that avenue or know that avenue's there. But I feel like there's a lot that's, we often don't think locally and we often don't think about shoring up our beliefs prior to preaching them, really. And as much as you say that's an unsexy way to put it, I actually think that's a, re- a way that Is really approachable for people so that hopefully there's a handful listening to this that now feel more empowered with being able to take the next step, especially in local wildlife advocacy. So I feel like that's a great place to kind of transition into these last four questions that I ask
1: to every guest.
0: And was there, did you have something you wanted to add to that? I didn't want to cut you off.
1: Oh, I just, I was just going to reiterate. I think that introspection about what you value and who you are is, is so important and not a lot of people do it. So I was just repeating that.
0: No, definitely. I feel like that's a great place for people to start. And so with these last four questions, I ask them to every guest. And I say, you can speed, you can go through them quickly, rapid answer. You can take as much time as you'd like. And... Each of these, you can either make them as small or as large of a question as you'd like. So feel free to to run with these. And the first one is, part of what is the part of conservation that needs our attention the
1: most? I'm going to be a little self-serving in this answer, but I think we need to preserve and protect the biodiversity we have on this planet. We can fix a lot of problems in time. I'm not at all trying to downplay climate change. That is the challenge. And if we could stop and reverse, that would be incredible. But there there will be opportunities to reverse climate change in the future, as, as horrible as that sounds. And don't take that as we don't need to stop it now. We absolutely do. So don't misinterpret that. But extinction is pretty permanent. And we are in a biodiversity crisis wherein we're driving the extinction of so many animals right now, plants and animals, and those don't come back. And so I think if we can protect all the diversity we can, that's really important right now. I really like actually that you brought up the
0: biodiversity crisis, because when I reached out to people outside of climate change, which you also mentioned, the biodiversity crisis was the thing that people thought needed to be the most discussed and most mentioned on a conservation podcast. So it's interesting. But that biodiversity crisis, I think, for people who are in advocacy or conservation, really is one of those things that people
1: find the most important to discuss and approach. Oh, yes. Just to, to add to that really quick species are like inherently valuable, individuals are inherently valuable, et cetera, et cetera. But also, and I alluded to this a little bit earlier, like there is a lot of really good hard science and social science that shows that systems with diversity are resilient, right? And those are groups of people, groups of perspective, groups of thoughts, all kinds of things. But it applies to ecosystems and even our planet. Our planet will be more resistant to crises and catastrophes the more diverse the life is on it. So there's a self-serving interest in there too, just to be clear.
0: And that's definitely a great point to bring up because I feel like a lot of people think, you see it with invasive species. Some people think, Hey, if the invasive is more successful, why shouldn't that be there? And it really boils down to the more diversity you have in that ecosystem, the less fragile it is. So the second question I have is the area you want to see grow in
1: conservation. See if I can make this clear and succinct. I think the conservation movement, one of the things it suffers from is the notion that we are protecting these far-flung and distinct places or these species that we don't see and i think we need to do better at recognizing and protecting the spectrum of what we're trying to conserve and by that there's conservation to be done on urban landscapes and in the most remote wildernesses in the world and in between. And we don't often think about protecting those interface areas, those liminal places. There's groups that focus on wilderness. There's occasionally, we'll talk about county or state parks and stuff. But I think we need to be a little more holistic in how we view landscape conservation. And and in so doing, I think we'll improve wildlife conservation too, growing the perspective of what needs to be conserved from a kind of a spatial perspective and see those little places in between that are offering habitat, offering biodiversity, offering wildlife, offering ecosystem services to people, but they're not pristine wildernesses or they're not parks. They're the arroyo that flows next to my house. And I don't think a lot of people do that. And I certainly don't do that, but I think it'd be, I think it's worth doing.
0: I also think a lot of people don't realize just The benefit that protecting and preserving, especially these urban landscapes, can really bring those who've listened to episode seven of my podcast with Rachel Hutchins about Bluff Lake Nature Center here in Denver, there's so much education and ecosystem value that can come from an urban open space that most people are going to look to protect that sprawling open space in the mountains, that's 30 miles from Denver. But they protected a three kilometer area in the heart of Denver that really brings so much to the table with conservation. So I really like that answer in terms of just the spatial scale of everything.
1: Yeah, I walk from my office to the grocery store a few times a week for lunch or whatever, and I pass by a prairie dog colony and it's we have prairie dogs after humans and beavers prairie dogs are somewhere in that ranking of like really impactful ecosystem engineers especially in the desert and they're right there next to a super busy intersection covered in trash with a chain link fence running straight through their colony but that's valuable and we don't yeah like you said we don't think about those things very often prairie dogs are The perseverance of those prairie
0: dog colonies, the number of times you'll be biking somewhere or walking somewhere and all of a sudden a colony just pops up is pretty amazing. So the next one is, what area of conservation concerns you the most? Can I give two
1: quick answers? Definitely. Okay, I think the misuse or maybe even co-option of the word conservation is pretty concerning. People use that word to mean whatever they want these days. And I could give you a slew of examples, like the notion that hunting is conservation, which is a really well-cultivated slogan that gun manufacturers and state wildlife agencies have managed to make stick. What does that even mean? Buying guns and hunting licenses funds fish and wildlife agencies, but what they do isn't always conservation, and you could buy those things and not hunt. and. So you're not hunting, you're just putting money into those things. So that's just one little example. But I I don't think there's a shared, recognized notion of what that word means, conservation. And I do think it's being co-opted for some pretty bad.
0: uh, I'm actually going to pause you there and I want to hear your second one. But that just pops up as interesting to me because you could also argue that where that conservation today is what is co-opting that term. Because I I spoke with Dr. Lu a little bit about this with the idea that technically what we view as conservation today historically was viewed as preservationist. And that conservationist really is that hunting, fishing mentality. And so I've never heard of it, though, brought into that scale of that impacts how we view the term conservation and therefore the work we can do under that term.
1: Yeah, and I don't claim to... To own that term either. To be clear, I'm just another person who's trying to use it. I happen to think my way is right, but that's so would anyone else. Yeah, it's a really interesting, not to go well down a wormhole, but it's a really interesting notion, the power of language. I also think there's a this fascinating phenomenon that again, I think, had been cultivated cleverly, but that conservation is something that's proactive and like we do conservation, it's an action and I think that's really weird too, because for the most part, landscapes, wildlife, rivers, the most beneficial thing that, that we can do in terms of conserving them is not doing anything at all. Stop developing, stop trampling, stop killing things, et cetera. And the only like proactive thing that I know of that's, that falls in line with conservation is really like restoration work. If you're planting native species on a degraded stream, like that's proactively doing something conservation is this like thing that we always do and that needs to be paid for i think is really weird cuz you don't like rabbits don't need money like what you're paying for conservation i don't know what that means like you can pay to buy trust lands and keep development off of it i guess that's paying for conservation and some hunting may be conservation if there's an ungulate herd that is way out of whack with historical population or it's doing damage or whatever like maybe that hunting can be conservation but for the most part this notion that we do proactive conservation is a really weird one to me that i'm trying to wrestle with a little bit anyway i I took it do you want to continue that or do you want me to give my other answer (laughs)
0: Um, i'd love to hear your second answer for what concerns you most
1: Okay. Yeah. The other, I think, really concerning thing about the conservation movement and the environmental movement is something that's been apparent for a long time. So again, I'm not breaking any news to anyone, but it's the historic racism and privilege in the movement that we are making strides to change, I think, but certainly haven't done as much as needs doing. And as long as it's people who look like me... This is a podcast, so you can't see it, but I'm a white man and I will eventually be an old white man. And as long as there's people like me who are deciding what gets protected and why, because I've spent so much time backpacking in this area and this mountain is pretty, that is a failure. And the conservation and environmental movements need to, they need to become more diverse and they need to be more complicated, more introspective, more progressive to succeed eventually. And again, I'm not breaking any news there, but it's just we will continue to lose until that changes.
0: I definitely agree with that. And it's something I struggle with because we're two white men on a podcast. And one of the things I started this podcast asking the women who came on their experiences in the field, but I've found that I've had the same, if not more women on this podcast, actually than men. However, I believe everybody I've had on this podcast save one or two falls into the category of being a a white European or a white American. And it really is something I struggle with to a certain extent because I want this podcast to be a space that promotes and advocates diversity and conservation yet I'm not living up to that standard. So it is a very interesting question I feel like that we all face because this is something that, I feel like most conservationists say they agree with, yet not many of us
1: live up to. Yeah. Maybe I can give you some names for people to reach out to. I'm sure you have some too, but yeah, I fail at it every day. We all fail at it constantly, and I'm not trying to drag your podcast down, but it's just it's the movement was built for a very specific set of reasons, and um, it's going to take a lot of concerted effort to change the movement because of that two white dudes talking about <laughs> to not be two white dudes. Talking.
0: <laughs> it's the reason I worked this question is I, know, is, I know you say you don't want to bring the podcast down, but it's that one down moment a little bit. And so that's why we end on a positive note, which is your <laughs> advice to
1: future conservationists. Mm, try not to repeat myself again at risk of repeating myself. I think you really need to know your why. Be grounded in your values. Don't, be a conservationist certainly don't be a professional conservationist because it seems like a cool career partially cuz it's not like i just sit in front of a computer and email people but also like you have to have a stronger why than oh i want to be a part of a movement that's that's a sheep right you got to know why you're doing something so that's one piece of advice i guess the other piece of advice is like the movement needs to be reinvented for both the reasons that i just or that we just discussed but also because the world is changing so rapidly so maybe my other piece of advice is learn from people who have been doing it but don't follow us cuz we haven't won nearly as much as we need to and there needs to be not only new energy but there needs to be radically new ideas of how to bring about change and I'm going to continue to do this work for a long time and I hope to rack up some victories and protect some places and animals and stuff like that. But my efficacy will wane as the world changes and there needs to be people coming after me with better ideas who will change the world more.
0: And that's actually a great answer to that one because I was given the advice recently to end the podcast on asking what is your why? Why do you do what you do?
1: Mm. I first started doing this stuff, my why was a pretty like simple kind of ecocentric answer. It was like, I'm doing this because this forest shouldn't be cut down or this fish species shouldn't go extinct, which is still true, but it's a little bit shallow. And I think now... The reason I do this work is because we're in the moment of the great test of our species and our society. And I I do this work from a human-centric point because I want us to, I want our species to be on this planet and make beautiful things and do beautiful things for a lot longer than we will be if we continue to do what we're doing. So I basically want us to pass the test of, can we rein ourselves in can we control ourselves to the extent that we can continue to exist on this planet along with all our other wild neighbors and friends and families because again this isn't breaking news but we're more than capable of destroying ourselves and we'll take a good chunk of the planet with us but we'll be outlived by some species and other species will come after we're gone and i want us to be around i want us to see that stuff i want us to do beautiful things and and we're only going to do that if if we learn to coexist on this planet with other human communities and wild communities
0: that's a great place to draw this to a close thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me i really appreciate it
1: yeah thank you sean i appreciate it too